0: It's just wonderful to see the breadth at which God is building His church, um, and that's uh, that brings us to our topic of Ephesians. We have been looking through the book of Ephesians <clears throat> slowly, but we are making progress. Um, we have seen or we, we have seen the doctrine and the duty of the church. Now we haven't gotten to the duty part yet, but we will uh, starting in chapter four. Uh, coming up soon here. But we have, Paul has laid out a very, a very uh, good uh, foundation of the doctrine of the power of God. God's power in developing his church and building his church. Now, today, we will see that Paul is moving his attention toward God's power in godliness. God's power in godliness. So if you will turn to Ephesians chapter. Three, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 19. Now you don't hear much about godliness these days. Um, we are too busy enjoying our freedoms in Christ to even think about godliness. It's not a word that you hear about. It's a godly character, godly living, godly people. Those are just terms that we don't really use too much anymore. In fact, we treat godliness as some kind of external standard. That uh, we hold up, nobody wants to, to be part of that, nobody wants to, to do it, but we kind of hold it up to, uh, to we try to get everybody to conform to it. When in reality, godliness is something that's done within the heart. And something that God is building within us, and it's based upon the change that has taken place already in our hearts. And that godliness then comes out. Here's, here's just a list. I found this list from uh, some uh, information from 1985. And uh, there's actually more to the list, but those are the ones that I could get on. And Self-control, integrity, compassion, courage, dependability, diligence. I'll let you read the list. Look at the last three or four. Responsibility, reverence, respect, thankfulness. Godly character, godly behavior, those are things that grow out of the power of God. When God is working in a life, those things will be there. Now, just in review, we have seen the power of God in establishing this, this new administration, this new way in which God is now working with man, with mankind. And um, Paul has introduced us to that administration, and that that uh, uh, way in which God is working, and in that is the church. It's no longer through Israel, it's no longer through a nation, but it's through a church. And we've seen God's power demonstrated in the, the resurrection of Christ, the very cornerstone of the church. And then him pulling people together, giving them spiritual life, and in the individual, we see the power of God. Establishing the church, we've seen the power of God. And then, then last week, we looked at the power of God in the ministry of God's servants. That's Paul himself. And how God's power was demonstrated in in him and Paul. And today, again, we turn our attention to this passage. Um, in fact, Paul is coming to the heart of his letter. This is really what it all boils down to. These verses between 14 and 19, as far as the rubber meeting the road and all of this, the culmination of Paul's teaching on the doctrine, the power of God comes down to this and he does so in a prayer. We saw that earlier on in chapter one, when Paul Paul expressed his concern for the believers in a prayer, he does the same at the end of this doctrinal section, the first three chapters this doctrinal section he's closing it with a prayer having informed them of the power of God and seeing that God was working in them he he teaches them what God is doing what God is up to and how they fit into the church and what God is how God is establishing this church and how it's not just them but it's universal they're part of the the saints, and that's a, a key term in the book. Now Paul prays in this section, he prays that God's maximum power be used uh, and, and released in their life. That he would work, that their work, his work in their life would come to fruition and they would yield to God's power at work in their life. And he applies it. He applies this teaching. Uh, Like I said, it is the very heart, very heart of this passage, of this section, of the doctrinal section, so we don't want to miss this. Paul's concern is that his work will have been in vain, that what he saw springing up would not come to fruition. It's kind of like when we were small. We put a little seed in a a cup and we would water it. We would make sure that it would get sunlight. And there's not much else that you can do. Once you put it in, once you plant the seed, you might be seeing a little sprout. But you don't know the fruit. You don't know how extensive that fruit is going to be. And that's what he sees. He sees that God is working in the lives of these people. He just prays that it would be authentic that it would be genuine. That it would come to full fruition. That it would be real. As a little boy, <laughs> I remember thinking, is that all? Just this little thing? Come on, it's got to grow bigger. You almost wind up praying for this little plant. Lord, do something. <laughs> and we realize our, our frailty, our limitation. A farmer realizes, and he just is dependent upon what? Dependent upon God and giving rain and giving sun, and Paul feels that same sense here. He feels dependent upon God because God is the one doing it. He's just he's just watering, he's cultivating, he's just he is planted, and he wants to make sure that it's genuine growth and genuineness and authenticity of the the Church of God of what God is doing. They're in Ephesus in Asia Minor. Now, I want you to see the structure before we get into uh, to too much here, the point of the passage. I want you to see the structure of the passage from verses 14 to verse 19. First of all, I want you to know that he's introducing his prayer in the first two verses. There's a few things that we'll, we'll say about that. And then he gets into his prayer in 16. Now, in verse 16, in my translation, the first word is the word that. And it's the word henna in Greek. And it's a it introduces a purpose clause. He's he's telling them why he's praying for them. What's the purpose of his of his prayer? And that actually then becomes the structure of this passage because he uses that henna, that that, or the so that, four different times in this little in this little passage. Like I said, that's the structure. But notice also this is future tense. Paul is praying. For their their growth or that they would be granted these things. And it's talking about in the future. As opposed to chapter 2 when he points back. You were dead. Now he's talking about the future. Having already settled the salvation in their hearts and their life. He is now praying for the spiritual growth. The godliness that God can produce and that's what we see so you see future tense in this prayer and you also see <clears throat> you also see a progression here there's a steps there's steps here there's the first the first thing that has to happen is this and then that something else builds on that something else builds on that it's just steps it's going up the the ladder here and there's four of them four steps or four things that Paul prays for these believers <coughs> Praise that would happen and would be true in their life. Now, the primary, let me just point this out the primary demonstration of God's power in the church is not some kind of external speaking in tongues or some kind of miracles of that sort. It's the change in people's lives. It's moving people from ungodliness to godliness. That takes the power of God within the church. And that's Paul's, that's Paul's point. That's what we will see in this passage. The power of God is supplied to the church so that God's people will become godly. That's the point so that they will be holy, sanctified, set apart from the world, but then also sent into the world, distinct from the world, as holy, but yet in the world. Therefore, the point, God's power produces godly living in the lives of His people. God's power produces godly living in God's people. That's what It's what happens. It's what he does. Now let's look at, uh, let's look at the text. Let me begin reading in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father from every, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the core of Paul's prayer. Be strengthened in the inner man. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And you can see that progression right there. Now let's start at the very first, verse 14. <clears throat> for this reason. For this reason. Now Paul started this sentence, he started this sentence back in verse 1. If you notice, he says, for this reason in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, of our, uh, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of what God's doing in my life. And if you indeed you have heard of the ministry God has granted me and the power of God in my life. So it's a parenthesis. In fact, that parenthesis goes from chapter, or from verses 2 down to verse 13. Paul, Paul's almost on a rabbit trail. He's sidetracked. It's not something that's external to the text or, or something that doesn't matter. He is talking about the power of God in his own ministry. So it's vital to the text. But it's something that he interjects here. But then he comes back to that same thought for this reason in verse 14. So, why is Paul praying? For what reason? Well, we have to look back. He starts for this reason, the first of chapter 3. So, it has to include all of what took place in chapter 2. Chapters 1 and 2. In fact, just let me read a a few of these things for you. Here's some reasons uh, or, or for this reason, Paul says. And here's some of the reasons. Because he has made you spiritually alive. Chapter 2, verse 5. Because God has worked in your life individually and he sees that sprout coming up. God has made them alive. They have now spiritual life. He prays for them. Also, we are his workmanship. Because God is working. Number 2 chapter 2 verse 19 we are no longer strangers or no longer aliens and strangers but we are part of what god's family part of what god is doing therefore paul prays for them we are god's household we are built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets that's the that's the church and then being built upon uh, being built upon the church, we are, we are built together into a dwelling house of God. Because God is working in your heart, I'm going to pray that that strength, that power that God ha- can supply would, would produce some things in your life. That's essentially what Paul is praying. And notice he says, for this reason I bow my knee. There's many positions in scripture Paul is not trying to necessarily teach one way to to pray there's many positions that we find in scripture of prayer including the the one man prayed on the cross he was on a cross he could not bow he could not stand but what you do see within this this context here of what paul is saying here is i bow my knee there's a few elements to that it's a sign of submission paul is Submitting himself to a greater, to a higher authority, he's bowing himself because he knows that that the establishment of these people, these this young church in Asia Minor, depends upon God. So God humbly submits himself to the to one that can answer his prayer. And then it's also a sign of intense passion. Intense passion and emotion. Paul bows his knee. It's a it's a brokenness. It's a dependency upon the Lord, the one who can do things, the one who is in control. It's the one whose power that he is praying for, and then just just simply reflecting his reverence for God's glory. It's just that's what it is. It's reverence for God's glory. So all of that is I bow my knee. I bow my knee in the midst of one who has a higher rank than I, and I'm dependent upon Him, and I plead to Him passionately for you people. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Before the Father. Paul recognizes our dependency upon, <clears throat> upon God as we are mere children, and He is our Father. There's obviously the dependence there. But notice in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now what's he talking about there? Well, it would be out of context for Paul to talk about the whole universal family and the, the family of man or mankind. I don't think he's saying that. Um, it's best translated, the whole family. And in fact, uh, maybe the I think the... The King James, maybe the New King James has it translated that way. I'm not sure about the, the ESV. It might be translated that way in that, in that version. But the two, the two, uh, elements of this is the Father at the end of verse 14 and from whom all, uh, every family or the whole family in heaven and on earth derives his name. There's a play on words there, and you can't be, it can't really be translated, but you have the patera, the father, and the pas patria, the fatherhood. In fact, you can bring it out, broaden it out. It's, it's all of those under the fatherhood of God, but it's still best translated, the whole family. Paul is not talking about the universal family of mankind, but the universal family of the church. Of God's family, there's essentially two families here on Earth: family of Satan and the family of God. We see that in the the writings of John, very very clearly. Uh, Christ talking to the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, he talks to them as and he, and he just flat tells them, "You are of your father, the devil." And so we see two families, two distinct families. Now. <clears throat> That then brings us up, that's the introduction of Paul's prayer, verses 14 and 15. And then Paul answers the question for us. And here's the question. Here's the question. And this is what we want to focus our attention on today. How does God's power produce godliness in His people? In God's people. How does does it happen? Paul tells us right here how it happens. How God its power produces godliness in God's people. We see number 1. <clears throat> we'll go right into the right into the point. The Holy Spirit inwardly encourages the believer. Inwardly encourages the believer. Let me read verse 16. That now so that this is the the point of my prayer, the reason I'm praying for you because I'm bowing my knee before the Father is That He, the Father, would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, where? In the inner man. Inwardly. Inwardly. Now, His wording here is very interesting. He recognizes His dependent upon God, and He just says that He would grant you. That He would grant you. Now, we remember back in, uh, Acts chapter, what, Acts chapter 8, this man tried to buy the power of God. Simeon, do you remember that story? You could turn over there and Paul, and Peter was dealing with Simeon and he says, you, you, you take your money and, and, and go. Your money will die with you. You can't buy the power of God. It can't be bought. I do want you to turn over to 2 Timothy, though. I want you to see this little element. power of God cannot be bought. It has to be granted from God. It has to be, it's a gift. It has to be granted from God. And I want you to notice something, though, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. to 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, we are in the last days. It's not because the end of the world is supposed to happen in 2012. It's because we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. We're in the last days. And here's some characteristics of the people that live in the last days. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And and here's here's the verse, holding a form of godliness... Now, what he has presented here is just the opposite of godliness, isn't it? Just the opposite of godly character, of what it means to be a godly person. But they have a form of it. And the term there, form of godly character, is is good translation would just be a a silhouette. It just looks like it, as though we could hold up our hands and create a rabbit on the screen. It's just a silhouette, kind of looks like a rabbit. Or it looks like some kind of creature, some kind of animal on the screen. But the reality it is, is not there. They what? They deny its... So they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. The power of God is not there. It's just simply external. And that's our concern many times as pastors. That we we see a, a people and we see a form of godliness. But is the reality there? And that's Paul's prayer. Paul's heart is that the, that the reality would be there. That it would be authentic. That it would be genuine. And so he prays, Lord, allow the power of God to work in their life. And the inner man. You can turn back to Ephesians. He says, according to the riches of God. not Not out of his riches. Not just a little bit... A portion of his riches, but according to and God is an all-powerful God. According to his riches could be a a large sum of his riches, could be a large portion of his of his power be granted to this. Paul's not praying just for just enough power to get them through the day, but but strength. He says that they would be strengthened. That's the idea of healthy vigor, vigorous, with force. There, the term also could, uh, could be, uh, translated encouragement. And I thought, well, that was kind of strange. One of the commentaries that I read said that it, it was in contrast to verse 13. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart on my, um, at my tribulations. This losing heart, that would be the opposite of this word, according to this one translate or one uh, one commentary. And I like this because the power of God comes through encouragement. That's the way it comes. Now, it, it, it's obviously in the inner man. That's what uh, he he mentions here, and it's not the it's not just the energizer bunny that Paul just or that God just. Infuses us with some kind of energy No, it's it's more than that if I'm sitting on the couch and I hear a knock on the door And I look out and somebody's holding this big giant check and I think Publishers house clearing or publishers clearing house. I think wow Now that's energy Right And and then I think I didn't even register for that. How are they on my doorstep? But I tell you, that would get me out of the couch, wouldn't it? That would get me off the chair. That's energy. That's the kind of energy that Paul is talking about here. An enthusiastic energy. And it comes from the power of God that God supplies. The ability uh, to perform an activity. That's That's the idea. But it's in the inner man to be strengthened with power. In the inner man. Well, let's talk about that idea of the inner man for a moment here. The inner man is, uh, and we've got this on the screen for you. The disease of sin has affected the inner man and causes the inner man to, or the, it causes the outer man, causes the outer man to die, to decay. It's not just the out man, it's the outer man. Because of the outer man, to decay and to die, to perish, because of man's inner man, because the inner man of man is is uh, sinful, causes the outer man to die. But also the believer's outer man is destined to perish, but not his inner man. That's an incredible thought. We find that in Scripture, 2 Corinthians four, the inner man is actually being renewed. It is actually being strengthened by God. That's the inner person. The outer person is, is dying. As a believer, you know those truths. The inner man must be renewed. And it's not just... Uh, uh, salvation starts the process. And that's not the only time that he needs to be renewed. But it's just a constant sustaining power of God. The divine nature has been placed in the believer at salvation... And serves as a, as a basis for the Holy Spirit to change thinking. And we see this in first, first Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And the Holy Spirit allows... I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit alone is the one who energizes, revitalizes, and empowers. It's the Holy Spirit can do that work. What we see is an unsaved world trying to deal with the inner man. That's what we see today, and they have a lot of advice for the church. In fact, they would say you guys need to stop that supernatural stuff and just start working on the realities. And the reality is they cannot explain an inner man. Their material world has no explanation for an inner man. In fact, so then their conclusion is we are essentially just like the animals. That's what the world would say. That's what is going on. And so, the world has a different concept. The world has to have psychologists and psychiatrists to work with the inner man. They know something's wrong with the inner man. Something's deformed with the inner man that needs correcting. They think they can do it with sessions and, and uh, um, various means. Maybe education and Anything like that. Now, we recognize there's something wrong with the inner man. It is sin. And it's the flesh that we still have to deal with. And we see this. Paul communicates this in Romans chapter 7. It's very clear that he struggles with this flesh from this inner man that says inner man dwells in. Let me give you uh, some of the the points. The inner man versus the flesh. Look at this. And this is also in your... um, In your little outline in the handout today. The flesh is hindering the inner man of the believer. The flesh is hindering the inner man. This flesh, it is decaying. It is dying. But it has old habits. And old habits die hard. And it brings us down. It wants us to decay with it. But in contrast, the inner man is being renewed and strengthened the next one is believers are commanded. Believers are commanded to set their mind on the spirit, which is life. Not the flesh, which is death. You know those passages. Romans chapter 8. Pastor went over those a couple months ago. We know this passage as well. Those who are of the flesh cannot what? Cannot please God. We, we're not to be of this flesh. to focus on the inner man. Through the power of the Spirit, the evil deeds of the flesh can be killed, can be put to death, we see in Scripture. And again, Romans chapter 8. And then Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, walking in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires or the deeds of the flesh. You will not do the deeds of the flesh. When the inner man is submitted to the power of the Spirit, and is being regularly fed by the Word of God, you can guarantee, you can rest assured in your own life that it is God that is energizing you, that is God that is giving you that encouragement, that motivation to do right. It's through the power of the Spirit, and we get that through the reading and studying and the Word of God. Now, Paul is not talking about, back in Ephesians, Paul is not talking about some second-class citizen that he's, he, he wants you to be energized and all the rest of the Christians are not energized. This is just what God is doing. It starts at salvation, and this is the sanctifying process. This is the way things are, are at work in your life. And uh, this is not something that happens to you later. This is a constantly ongoing process. Now I want you to see a picture of this, and, and then we'll move on. Paul, Paul's prayer is that they would be energized. Look at Second Timothy. You were there before. Look what happened to Paul. Look at the look at the dependency he is on the power and the strength of God. Second Timothy chapter four, this time, and verse sixteen and seventeen. At my first defense, now if you remember, Paul appealed to Caesar, and he is waiting try on standing or getting ready to stand before Caesar, Nero, and these, this, uh, these kings that God has appointed him to stand before. But look what happened to Paul. At my first defense, and there's probably a process here, there was some things that had to happen that had to take place. This first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me. And what? And strengthened me. He got his encouragement because he knew that God was with him. That God was giving him strength. That God was giving him power. That God would give him the grace to be able to overcome and to do what God has set him to do. And that's exactly what happened. He says, God was with me. And he was strengthened me. So that through... Me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. <laughs> the Lord gave me strength. And I was right there. I was right there with those powerful men. And the Lord rescued me. The Lord took me away. He, he allowed me to fulfill what needed to be done. And I was in, a, in accord with what God was doing. It's kind of like a hand in a glove. You could put a glove there and there's no life. But if you put your hand in that glove, that glove can accomplish great things. God's power in the believer can accomplish great things. We see that with Paul. That's the perfect example. It's a great example. Now, what are you feeding the inner man? Is your inner man growing? Is it strengthening? Paul told Titus or Timothy to... To train yourself for godliness. Uh, Do you have a healthy regiment for the inner man? Do you even give consideration to the inner man? Well, how how does God's power produce godly people? It's when the Holy Spirit inwardly encourages the believer. And there's also the presence of Christ increasingly, the presence of Christ increasingly influencing the believer. That's verse 17. So if you turn back to Ephesians, verse 17a, just the first part of this, just a short little uh, uh, sentence here, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. So when the Holy Spirit comes in and energizes, that gives Christ the ability to settle in into your life and dwell. Now, he's not talking about salvation here, at the first time Christ comes in, but he's talking about dwelling. He's talking about settling down. In fact, that's exactly what the word means. It's from kata and oikeo. Oikio in the Greek, and it just means uh, down and indwelling a house. And it's the idea of settling down and dwelling into the house. And when the Holy Spirit comes in and, and, and begins to work in that heart, Christ becomes more more comfortable in that heart, in that life. And Christ can begin to work in that life. Let me read you this quote. In the context of this passage, the connotation is not simply that of being inside the house of our hearts, but being at home there. I like that. Being at home, settled down as a family member. Christ cannot be at home in our hearts until our inner person submits to the, submits to the strengthening of His Spirit until the Spirit controls our lives, Jesus Christ cannot feel comfortable there, but only strays like a tolerated visitor. Is Christ a, just a tolerated visitor in your home that he is trying to clean up, and you just keep cluttering up? And he goes on to say, Paul's teaching here does not does not relate to the fact that Jesus is present in the home or in the heart of the believer, but the quality of his presence the quality of his presence and that is through faith paul says it's a continuous action it doesn't just happen at one time at salvation and i'm there positionally you are but practically he is working in our lives and the, there's a continuing presence of that faith that allows christ to fill at home did you ever wonder why? This is in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Did you ever wonder why the three men, Abraham was praying, he looks up, and he sees three men coming to him. And he knows right off, they are of the Lord. In fact, it, it was one, one that was the Lord, and there were two messengers, or two angels. And they felt comfortable with Abraham. Abraham went, and he he got the lamb, and he and he... Made a dinner for them. He gave them water to drink. He washed their feet. He made them at home. He made them feel comfortable, and they were at home. They were comfortable with Abraham, but the Lord did not go to Lot's house. He was not there. The next chapter, only two men in went. Two men went into Lot's house. The Lord did not feel comfortable there. In fact, if you look over Second Peter. Lot himself did not feel comfortable there. Now, why did he stay? I don't know. But look what it says. First Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And if, you, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the uh, sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds that that's the picture of the believer the christian that should not be the picture of christ in our heart he should feel comfortable he should feel at home his purposes should be our purposes his goals should be our goals he should be he should be at home this is the best way to put it he can't be at home when, when, and comfortable with trash in the mind. He can't be comfortable when there's gluttonous appetites that's being fed on. He can't be at home when there's fellowship with those who we should not have fellowship with. He can't be at home with the entertainment sometimes that we put in our mind and our heart. He can't be at home. He doesn't feel comfortable there. It's, it's a struggle. And the true believer senses that struggle. You know, Christ is gracious. And He is patient. But He cannot be happy and satisfied in a heart that is dirty. That is unclean. That is not godly. So He, through the energizing of the Holy Spirit, is cleaning up that home that house, to the point that he can feel comfortable. That, <clears throat> verse 17, verse, back in Ephesians, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. He wants to dwell there. And again, it's through faith. So, the believer, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> has to indwell uh, or inwardly encourage the believer. The presence of Christ has to increasingly influence the believer And number three, the love of Christ, the love of Christ intellectually intensifies in the believer. Intellectually intensifies in the believer. You know, you say these are strange words, but I'm just getting them from the text. This is just what's there. Intellectual. That's exactly what Paul's wanting. He's wanting their minds to be engaged. He's talking about the love of Christ. Look at uh, the end of verse 17 and following. and that you being rooted and grounded in love that's when Christ comes and settles down and shows his love abroad in our hearts as Paul says elsewhere verse 18 may be maybe able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and that to know and to know the love of Christ which surpasses which surpasses knowledge to be rooted and grounded in And love is to have Christ at home in your heart and to experience the love of Christ. But he goes beyond that. He wants you to know it. He wants you to comprehend it. That's the mind has to be engaged. Now, we want to just stay there in the experience of God's love and Christ's love. But we don't want to exercise our mind. You know what that is? That's just theology. Understanding what Christ has done for you is just Christology. And it's engaging the mind. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ intellectually. What has Christ done for you? <clears throat> this is a supernatural kind of love. It's a, it's a love that only Christ can give us the capacity for. And it's a, it's a new kind of love. It's not, a world, it's not the kind of love that the world knows. It's this love that Christ has brought into our lives. And it goes beyond experience into knowledge. It's an agape kind of love. It's a love of choice. Well, uh, there's, uh, the the picture really is is the Christian having this new nature, and it's his nature to love. In fact, it goes against his nature to to be unloving. Uh, when when. There's an absence of love. There's an absence of... Or there's a presence of sin. The two cannot be together. When love is not there, sin is present. That's the believer. That's not necessarily for the unbeliever. In fact, this is a love that the unbeliever cannot understand. Paul wants us to know this kind of love. And in its fullness, he says, um, he says that you would understand... That you would comprehend with all the saints the breadth of it and that it goes beyond the Jews to include all the nations, the Gentiles, all the nations, all the tribes, even you Daniel's Bible church, it goes beyond years of time, it goes beyond those things. so we see the breadth of it, the length of it it, it goes from eternity past to eternity future. it, it never ends. The height of it reaches to the highest of heavens where Christ has placed us. We are placed in Christ in the heavenlies. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. That's the height, the depth. And it reaches down, it's able to reach down to the lowest uh, depths of the earth, to the vilest of sinners, Paul, Paul says of himself, the least among the saints, the vilest offenders Vilest sinners, Christ's love takes us beyond human knowledge, beyond human normal understanding, into a love that really the world cannot comprehend. Simply because they cannot comprehend Christ. This is a a love that is not based upon what it can get, but based upon what it can can give. Uh, it comes from the nature of Christ. It's God's Christ's nature to love. Therefore, it never ends. It's not offended. It continues to go even when we are offensive, when we are unloving. And it's a love that that we need to grasp, that we need to comprehend. Now, how do we get this love? How can we comprehend it? We just study Christology. Well, I think practically when we do read the word of God, we begin to see some things in in the word of God that teaches us of this love, the supernatural love of Christ. So we read our Bible. We study also of God's grace. We have to study God's grace. If we want to understand the the love of Christ, we understand God's grace. And then that takes us then to the third thing, and that's... uh, We have to know our own sinful past. We have to know how sinful we were and recognize what God has done in our life. And then we begin to see, God, you are so gracious. You are so kind. And you are so loving. Christ's love then rises to the top. We begin to see it. It's not some experiential thing, but it's something that we can know. And here's how we apply that. When difficulties come into your life... Where does your mind go does it go in the downward spiral of woe is me? Or does it go on to the love of Christ Christ? I know I God, I know the circumstances of my life But I know what you have done for me. I know the position that I am in I know what you uh, the love that you have for me. I know that grace that you have for me That's an intellectual thing. Sometimes we have to talk to ourselves in that way I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail that only leads to to negative thinking. I'm going to choose to dwell on the love of Christ. And through that, then, our lives begin to change. We begin to realize and understand and comprehend the love that Christ had for us. And then we begin to live that kind of love out in our life. Like I said, it's a supernatural love. Well, how does, the, how does the power of God produce godliness? Well, the Holy Spirit indwells, indwell, um, inwardly encourages the believer. The um, presence of Christ increasingly influences the believer. The love of Christ intellectually intensifies in the believer. And then lastly, and we'll close with this, the, um, the fullness of God exclusively indwells the believer. Exclusively. Exclusively. Only indwells the believer. Let me read the last little phrase here, verse 19. That you may be able, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You may be filled up to all the fullness of God. To be filled up uh, is the idea, is the idea of being dominated by it's not just a glass of water being filled up, that's the, that's the misconception of the day of today is the idea of just being dominated by the idea of how about the idea of rage? The idea of rage just just dominates a person sometimes. When a person is mad and they go they, they are enraged or outraged, that rage dominates a person. How about love? Love can dominate a person too. They're just dominated by love or happiness or, well, just the opposite would be hatred. Those are things that dominate the believer and dominate the person, dominate a person. What dominates the believer is the fullness of God. It's not 90% God and 10% me. It's not 10% God and 10% or 90% me. It's 100% God. It's the fullness of God. <clears throat> it's all that is in God is now in me. All that we are should be characteri- characteristic of all that God is. We simply lose ourselves in God. That's the idea. We are, we are completely godly, godlike. That's what Paul is communicating That's what Paul is bringing us to. That's the idea. So, Paul's prayer here for the believer Paul prays that the believer would would be dominated, genuineness, that God would work in his life, that he would be godly. And, And that is going to be through the Holy Spirit working, through Christ working in our hearts and then that produces godliness. Go back to the point. Let me let me just how does let's go back to the next slide the previous slide. How does that happen? Let me just reiterate. The Holy Spirit indwells or inwardly encourages the believer. The presence of Christ increasingly influences the believer. The love of Christ intellectually intensifies in the believer and the fullness of God exclusively indwells the believer. It's Christ or it's God that dominates that life. So Paul here in this prayer is saying that God's power produces godliness in the lives of church, in the lives of his people. I have to ask the question of our own church, our own selves, is what evidence do we see in our own life that God is at work? That's what this is. It just gives evidence that God is working. The biggest evidence is godliness, godliness in the lives of the believer. Godliness is being godlike inside and out. A godly life is, is the best way to tell that God is working in a person. If we want to see God's power unleashed in this church, it's going to be seen in godly living. It's not going to be seen by some kind of spectacular show. It's not going to be seen in some kind of miracles. We have to understand the epitome of God's power is to change a life. That's what He is in the business of doing. Changing lives. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, Lord... um, our dependence upon You. We recognize that Your power has to energize us, that Your Son, Christ, has to indwell us, that His love just has to be known and, and be understood in our minds and our hearts so that we can come to the fullness of God so that all that You are comes out <coughs> in our lives so that we, we live godly lives. Father, that's our prayer. May Paul's prayer be our prayer today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.